0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of ClearNote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit ClearNoteBloomington.com slash give. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Max Carell. One of the pastors here, the senior pastor, his name is Tim Bailey, is away this week and next uh, he and his wife are trying to get some relaxation. Um, So I suppose they will eventually if he stops calling me. (laughs) No, he's only called me once. Um, So pray for Tim and Mary Lee as they're away. And... uh, Ask God to strengthen them. If you're following his blog, you'll know that he's writing while he's away still, and I know he will be writing and working while he's there, but they could use some real refreshing. So pray that God will give them that, and uh, that they'll give themselves to it as well. We're going to continue this morning. Uh, Tim has been preaching a series out of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to continue really talking about uh, one particular verse, but I'm going to read a good part of chapter 14. And as a review, I want to uh, bring us up to speed again again about what the city of Corinth was like, who Paul was writing to in this book. Corinth was a very wealthy port city, so they had a couple of places where ships could dock, uh, a good many people, and a lot of money, and a lot of debauchery. A lot of the normal types of trappings that you would see in such a city, a lot of uh, sexual immorality, a lot of prostitution. But on top of having the normal types of things that would attend a city like that with the pride that they had and the wealth that they had, and the sexual sin that they had, they also had the Temple of Aphrodite. And there were, at one point, more than a thousand Dedicated prostitutes in that temple. So if you think about just those prostitutes, just the prostitutes in the temple, they had all kinds of other kinds of prostitutes throughout the city. It was a city that was given over to much sexual sin and debauchery. There was a saying if you were a captain of a ship, um, uh, I'm not going to get this word for word, but it was something like... um, you better be sure you can, go, you can afford to go to Corinth, okay? Which meant that, like for many people who travel to Las Vegas, when they come home, they don't have anything left. And so when they go to Corinth, they end up giving theirsel- themselves to such sin that they have nothing left. And it was something of a joke, but it was something that was known. So it wasn't a good place. It was a place full of sin. And there were Christians in Corinth... And as was true of the city, so was true of many of the Christians in the church there. They were wealthy, they were sexually compromised, they were proud, even to the point of being self-promoting in their pride. And Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, addresses all of these various things as he approaches uh, the part where he talks about their misuse of the service, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. And uh, he deals with them as he deals with, he deals with the other subjects, the sexual sin, the, the wealth and other things in the other parts of 1 Corinthians. But as we come to this place, we see that he's addressing the, addressing the fact that their pride is so bad that it even corrupts their public worship, the worship that they have as they gather together. Church members would promote themselves by flaunting their gifts and abilities, even going so far as to promote disorder and unintelligibility in their services. So it just became a chaos, a mess. And this did no one any good. The church was not improved, neither by quality, and because it was so chaotic, Paul actually says, who's going to stay around you? They're going to come in and think you're all mad. So it wouldn't even be improved by quantity. Because of this, okay? And so in this morning's reading, we have Paul addressing these things. You'll see the verse, and I'll talk about it later. It's out of this chapter that our church is named. And so I'll come back to that in a little bit. So let's begin reading 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy... For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies... "...than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation, or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones... How will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle sounds produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful." What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God. I speak in tongues more than you all. "'However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind "'so that I may instruct others also, rather than ten thousand words in a tongue. "'Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, "'but in your thinking be mature. "'In the law it is written, "'By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, "'and even so they will not listen to me,' says the Lord. "'So then tongues are for a sign.' Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what is an indistinct sound? What is an indistinct sound? An indistinct sound is an unintelligible one. There are many kinds of sounds that you hear that are indistinct, and they don't convey any meaning. When your, when your chair scrapes across the floor, it's not trying to tell you anything. There isn't any meaning in it, Okay. It's just a squeaking noise, it's indistinct. The most you can know is, the chair is being scraped across the floor, all right? An indistinct sound is an unintelligible one. Instruments produce sounds intended to harmonize with the key of the musical piece and with one another. The notes and chords played are not to be dissonant, inharmonious, discordant, Unmelodious, atonal, off-key, cacophonous, painful or unpleasant. And so when the band plays, we want them to be distinct. We want to hear a distinct sound. Even lifeless things, all of these instruments are lifeless, even lifeless things can produce a distinct sound, a flute the scripture says, a harp. They can harmonize, they can make melodies. A bugle, and in this case in the scripture, not used for harmonies necessarily, but in war calling someone to battle, it still makes distinct tones and calls communicating assigned messages. It calls you to charge, it it calls you to retreat. It calls you to lunch. It tells you, go to sleep now, right? But they know what these tones are communicating. They know what they're trying to say. Each one must produce a distinct sound. Unintelligibility is the result if they do not. It's true in music, and it's true in our communication with one another. So, in music again, um, Aaron was playing the piano for the offertory. And if Aaron plays the piano and misses a note on the song he's playing, I think he played part of O Sacred Head Now Wounded, is that right? If he's playing that and he misses a note, we'll say, Oh, that was dissonant. That didn't belong. That wasn't a clear note. Okay? And so he'll play along, and let's say his whole left hand plays the wrong notes. But the right hand is still playing the melody, and will say, "Ah, But I still recognize the song. Okay, okay, it hurts, but I'm still recognizing there's something there. But then finally, his left hand and his right hand both go spastic, and we just hear him pounding on the keys. Are we going to be able to recognize, oh, sacred head? No. We're not going to see it at all because it's going to be so distorted that the music is unintelligible. There will be nothing left. It's kind of like this when your children are learning to play an instrument. How many of you have children that have learned or tried to learn to play an instrument? Wow, not very many. How many of you failed to learn to play the piano? see a lot of them now. But our children sit down and they want to play an instrument, and you want to hope that it's an instrument that's, that's real calm and doesn't have those real high squeaky sounds like the violin, right? And you really want to hope it's not the drums, right? But as our children play, we, we'll often, you know, we'll be proud parents, but it's the most awful sound. Eventually, the real joy is when you actually can recognize the tune, Right? And usually the child recognizes that they're playing it correctly way before you do. Because they're telling you it's good. Sounds have to be distinct. And if they distort too far, they're completely unintelligible. And that's true in our communication. What would an indistinct sound be in the communication of a scheduled gathering of our church? Tongues, languages in the New Testament, are evidence of something spiritual. And they're discussed in here in chapter uh, 14 and in other chapters of 1 Corinthians. Also in the book of Acts, it talks about instances of miraculous language phenomenon in the early church. There are some things about these languages that we can be emphatic about, and other things that are more difficult to nail down. They seem to primarily be composed of bold prophetic content, the praises of God. So in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, the men stand up and they're speaking in languages, many languages that the people amassed around them understand, and the people are marveling and saying, they're doing this in my language. But the thing you need to realize is what they were doing in their language. They weren't talking about... uh, Sports games. They weren't given an account of something they saw at the Colosseum. They were speaking the mighty deeds of God, and this, in fact, was the fulfillment that Peter talked about at the end of the sermon when, when he read the sermon when he said, "These guys aren't drunk. It's just the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel: I will pour out my spirit on all men, and they will prophesy." And so these men were prophesying. Joel doesn't talk anything about say anything about speaking in tongues, but he does talk about prophecy. So these tongues are composed of bold prophetic content. Uh, later on in Acts, 11, or Acts ten, Cornelius receives the gift of tongues as Peter comes and preaches the gospel to him. The Gentile Cornelius receives the gift of tongues, and what is he doing? What is he saying as he's talking? In the language that he's talking in, it says he's exalting God. He was exalting God in the language. Later in Acts 19, Paul goes and meets the Ephesian men. And he prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. What are they saying? They're prophesying. They're prophesying. They all seem to be aware of what they're saying as they praised God. And they all seem to be edified by the experience. And isn't it edifying to speak of the praises of God? We, re- we speak of his praises because we're responding to his intervention of our life and the reality of who he is toward us. And so it's impossible to speak of his praises in, in response to that reality and not enjoy the, 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 the whole episode of praising him and worshiping him and exalting him. And this seems to be true also in 1 Corinthians. They're primarily exalting God. They're aware of what they're saying. They're edified by the experience. And also Paul is saying one more thing. They're able to stop and control when they do it. You don't have to do it. You could do it. You don't have to do it. You can, but you don't have to. If you do, then this should happen, okay? And so, the languages are much the same between Acts and Corinthians. But one of the big differences between Acts and Corinthians is that the languages in Acts were uttered in the context of particular instances of evangelism. The day of Pentecost, when God just added thousands of people to the church. Cornelius, when God reached out to the Gentiles through Peter, and those men at Ephesus that Paul prayed for, and the establishment of that Ephesian body of believers. In Corinth, by contrast, the tongues that were being uttered were being uttered in the context of the church service where the people already believed for the most part and where the broader expectation was for edification. The broader expectation was for clear intelligibility and edification on the part of the people present. Not everybody knew the language that was spoken in a tongue, but everybody knew a language that was common to everyone, the language that they were speaking in in the place. And so this was a basic difference between the two. John Calvin writes about this, and he says that the problem with the Corinthians, Corinthians was that they were bringing forth the gift improperly out of its right place, doing in the service with tongues what they, what, when they ought to be doing in the service with prophecy, primarily. Or tongues that were interpreted and therefore would bring edification to the service and to the people there. The problem was that the Corinthians were abusing the use of languages and creating a disordered, unproductive mess in the process. Now, I did a little checking into one of the words that we see used here in verse 16. Are you all familiar with what an idiom is? An idiom. Okay, an idiom is... Is a phrase or a turn of words that we use that we might understand locally. We all might be in on it. Or a whole large group of people might be in on the idiom. Okay? So one very easy one would be it's raining cats and dogs. Have you ever heard anyone say it's raining cats and dogs? Have you ever said it's raining cats and dogs? Okay, that's an idiom. Because if you think about that phrase literally, it's nonsense. And if you're one of our Chinese-speaking friends who are out in the trailer now having their uh, preaching time, and you said to them, I don't know because I don't don't speak Chinese, I don't know if they have any idiom equivalent to it's raining cats and dogs, right? I'm just assuming that they don't. But if you said to one of the Chinese-speaking students, it's raining cats and dogs, what are they going to do? They're going to say, that doesn't make sense. I guess I don't get this English very well they're going to say, I'm going to get under the piano because I don't know how big the cats and dogs are. They're going to say, the weather systems in America are so strange. Right? They're not going to understand the idiom because they're not going to be privy to it. We just understand it. When you tell it to your children, they're going to look at you, and then you're going to say, well, you know, it's, it's meaning, you know, what in the world does it mean? Right? A lot of rain big raindrops, uh, raindrops that are shaped like small animals. How did we come up with that? I don't know. Idiom comes from the word idios, meaning one's own. One's own. It belongs, right? It belongs. And it's used in our text in verse 16. And it's used, verse 16 said, otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, that is speaking in tongues, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you were saying. The word ungifted there is a form of idios, and it's idiots. Okay? Now does that sounding familiar? Okay. AKA idiot idiot. A person untrained, who only knows what he knows. He's not in on your tongue that you're speaking. He's an idiot to that tongue. We, we have, I have, we have an Argentinian friend, Claudio Molina, and uh, he and his wife Amy fellowship with us. He's in the pastor's college. And if Claudio stood up here this morning, he was up here playing the keyboard earlier, if you, if you don't know how to recognize that him. he We have so many people that look Argentinian in the church. But if Claudio stood up this morning and spoke in Spanish, his native tongue, most of us, even those who had taken three years of Spanish in high school, would find the noise he was making unintelligible. Why? Well, I tried to get Claudio to say, Cordoba. And he just can't say it right. You guys, how many of you are old enough to remember when, uh, whatever that guy's name was, selling the cars on television? And uh, he would say, rich Corinthian leather and it's the car's name was Cordoba which is named after a city in Argentina but we wouldn't understand maybe a few of us certainly amy his wife and a few of us might grab a word here or there there may be a couple others that, that do understand but what was going on in the Corinthian church that's addressed in our scripture this morning would a lot would have been a lot like claudio standing up and just going on in Spanish for a while. The Corinthians had languages. They were proud. Claudio speaks Spanish well, I guess. I don't, I'm don't. i assuming. He speaks the Spanish well. And so he may be proud of how he speaks Spanish, but the Corinthians were proud of their spiritual languages. And they wanted to give praise to God in their languages and tongues. And they didn't care if what they said was intelligible to other people or not so often they would not bother giving or they were not capable of giving an interpretation of what they were saying for those who didn't know the language now to not bother is one thing to not be capable is another thing right? Um, Claudio if he speaks in Spanish when he speaks in English it's not it's much dif- more difficult isn't it Claudio to speak in English. He does well. But he would have a more difficult time if he were speaking, saying a paragraph in Spanish and then dropping it into English for everybody to understand. That would be di- more difficult for him. But some people couldn't do that at all. But they were good at speaking another language. And so we have the Corinthian church. When it comes to Spanish, I'm an idiot. I don't know it. When it came to the many languages and tongues that the Corinthians knew, many of their church brothers were out of the loop. They didn't know. The tongues speakers were happy to have even their spiritual language skills highlight their superiority to everyone else. And it was disruptive because no one got edified. And so the Apostle Paul says to them, No. No. Stop. You may not speak in a tongue in the service and not have an interpretation of that tongue. Because if you do, you're causing chaos, and you're being selfish and proud, and the people are not going to be edified by what you say. And that's all fine and good for you who may be edified by what you say, but it isn't fine and good for anyone else, and that's not the purpose of what we're doing here in this service. So you have to have intelligibility, but that's only half of the equation. The goal of intelligibility should be edification, the building up of one another in the church. That's all edification is. It just means building up, improving. We're supposed to be improving one another in the church. It's part of our work. You're supposed to make me to be better, and I'm supposed to make you to be better. We're supposed to provoke one another to this work of improvement. That's edification. It happens as we sing. It happens as we pray. It happens as we talk to one another. It happens as we interact. It happens as we hear preaching. It happens in the Sunday school class. But the ungifted need to be able to agree with you, to hear you and to understand you, so that they may be edified, exhorted, and consoled in their difficulty this building up involves both quality and quantity it, it, quality because we're all improved quantity because as we're faithful in the work of improvement God brings other people along who hear us in that faithfulness and they in turn believe on Jesus Christ that's what it says there at the end of the chapter that I read We can say many things that are intelligible but not edifying. And we can say many things that are both unintelligible and not edifying. And we do, often. But we are supposed to be both intelligible and edifying. And so that verse in chapter 14 that I read that says, For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? If the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? That's the verse that our church is named after. Now, we didn't take it word for word, or we would be the distinct sound church, which is hard to say. But we took clear note church. And that's the meaning and the reason why we took it. Because we wanted to be intelligible and edifying, because we wanted to be clear in what we were saying. I don't know if we're living up to our name. I think we're always faltering, kind of falling forward as a church in living up to our name. Isn't that true? We just kind of stumble forward and and seek God to help us to be a little more intelligible and a little more edifying as we go along. And maybe over time we'll will be much more useful than we are today. We aspire to be useful. But do we care about indistinct sounds today? Do we care about our communications between one another? Do we care to be truthful and honest? I like it when people say to me, and you've heard people say this many times, well, to be honest with you. Have you ever had anybody start a a sentence with that? Well, to be honest with you. And I always say, well, I'm glad finally you're going to stop lying what do they mean by that? Well, it may be that somebody would would have been lying, okay? But usually they just mean, ah, I didn't trust you to let me say this to you. I'm a little scared. Or I'm afraid of what you'll do with this information. Or there's a lot of reasons why someone would actually preface. Or they're just using it as a filler line, you know. They just say it so often. It's just a filler line, to be honest with you. But, This is what it means to be distinct and intelligible and useful. That we are honest with one another. We need to be distinct in our conversation. Jesus has said that when we would know the truth through continuing in his word in John eight, when we would know the truth, the truth would make us free. The process of hearing and knowing the truth comes from many different places. But that truth, however it comes to us, it comes from God, it's His truth, it comes to us through one another, through the scripture reading, through through preaching, through many places. When it does come to us, it will make us free. We should be hurrying to bring the truth. Hurrying to be free ourselves and hurrying for those we love to be free. And boiled down to its essence, our message is always essentially these four, one of these four things. We're always talking about who God is. We're always talking about who we are. We're always talking about the implications of the difference between the two, the disparity. And then we're talking about how we were, are being, or can and will be reconciled to God. How the disparity is closed. That is what we talk about all the time. Who God is, who we are, the disparity, how the disparity is closed. That's what we do. That's the, that's the, the, the thing that we're talking about. Jody read the chapter from Hebrews this morning. Did you hear it in the chapter? Talked about who God is, talked about who we are, talked about who Jesus was closing, but the disparity. Be careful of the disparity, it says. It's a terrifying thing to be in conflict with the holy God. Okay, And so we're always working toward that goal, or we should be, but It's difficult to say those edifying things because we get to be afraid. Maybe we don't believe that the truth is what will set us free. Maybe we just think if we educate people more or if they have more money or if they have better health care. The reality of our lives is that we will never be free, no matter what the circumstances of our lives, we will never be free from the disparity that exists between us and God and the certain wrath that will come upon us because of his justice until we hear the truth and until we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so do we sound clear notes with one another as we build one another up? Or are we afraid to speak the truth because perhaps we'll suffer for saying it or we think we will. Or perhaps we know that that person has at that opportunity the The possibility of rejecting us for telling them the truth. Or maybe we would just rather trumpet our own self-importance on Facebook or some other social media site than tell the people the truth that they need to hear. And so we have a job. By application, by extension, sounding a clear note isn't something that's just done in the worship service. God's people are responsible to sound a clear note everywhere they are. And so we go to small group, and do we sound a clear note in small group? Are we intelligible and edifying in small group? Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, Ephesians 4. Are we intelligible and edifying? Do you go to small group and just talk about the movie that you saw yesterday? I can tell you an intelligible interpretation of a movie that I see. But it's not likely to be edifying. Right? Intelligible and edifying. And concerning you, my brother, and I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Here's the movie I watched yesterday. Let me tell you the plot, and then you'll see how that admonishes you. All right? Intelligible and edifying, Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing intelligible and edifying, Hebrews 10, and let us consider, and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You think about it, stimulating someone to love and good deeds, and you think, well, okay, that's going to take a little preparation, isn't it? You go to small group today, and you're going to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Well, now listen, I'm not telling you that every word that comes out of your mouth has to be you stimulating people to love and good deeds. You ought to be loving them in what you say. You are going to talk about the noodle salad. It's going to happen, right? Where's the salt? My kid took his first step today, right? It's going to happen. That's love. That's part of love. Love. But to stimulate to love and good deeds, it, it has some intentionality behind it. You actually have to think at small group, how can I edify someone here with something intentional that I want to say that has to do with what God has said and what he's revealed, or what, what God has said and what he's revealed, particularly as it applies to my brother or sister and what I see in their life that I think would be, I could be helpful with them in. Okay? It takes a little thought. You have to think about it. Do we we sound a distinct note in our homes? In his sermon in, in Acts 2, Peter says to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now here's a question. Do your children need to be saved from this perverse generation? Yes. Do your grandchildren? Yes. And God has said that he has promised that he would give his Holy Spirit not just to us. He wouldn't just save us and fill us with his Spirit, but he would save our children. And he would fill them with his spirit. And he would save those who are far off, our neighbors, and fill them with his spirit. I know he's talking about the Jews, but he's not just talking about the Jews. Right? He has promised this to us. And so when you're preaching to your children, do you tell them that they need to be saved from this perverse generation? Do you tell them who God is? Really, I mean really tell them. I don't mean some kind of American understanding of God. Do you tell them about the holy God? The holy God that that when, that when the Levites aspired to have, when they were reviling against Moses... The holy God that said that that Moses, as soon as he heard them reviling, was afraid for them. And then when Korah upped the ante even more, Moses said, okay, God, I'm not even going to intercede for Korah anymore. I don't know what to do about this. He's just attacking me directly. My paraphrase. And God says, get everybody back away from Korah's house. Stand back. And so Moses gets everybody back. And then Moses says, now... If, if Korah goes to God in the normal way by living a life and then dying a natural death, then I'm wrong. But if Korah goes to God in a different way, say, by the earth opening up and swallowing him, then you'll know that Korah was wrong and I was right. And then what happened? The earth opened up and it swallowed Korah. It swallowed his wives. It swallowed some children. It swallowed his tents. It swallowed his animals. And then the other men, I think there were 200 of them, Levites, who at that time were standing in front of the tabernacle and who had incense censers, and they were swinging incense. God's wrath went out against them, and because they had reviled and aspired to something they weren't supposed to and had been presumptuous against God, and he sent and just burned them up. And Moses sent Aaron, and he said, pick up all the incense Sensors. We have to use them for holy purposes. They used them to, to coat the steps of the altar or something. Then stop there. Then the people started complaining about what happened with Korah and all those guys. And then immediately when he heard it, Moses said to Aaron, Quick, get the censer, get some incense and some coals from the altar, and run. And then Moses fell on his face, if I remember it correctly. And Aaron ran. And by the time Aaron got to the point where the people were dead and the people were not yet dead, and stood between in, in the place between them, dead, not yet dead, he stood there and in, in, a, in a desperate plea, swinging the censer to God to stop. By the time he ran and got to that point, 14,000 people were dead. Do your children know this God whose holiness demands that kind of obedience? Who, if it weren't for the work of Jesus Christ, where would we be? Do your children know that God? Do they know who they are? Do they know about the gap, the gap that exists between they and God? And do they know how that gap was filled? intelligible and edifying, clear. How about your relationships with those who are not yet reconciled to God, who you work with and who you, are your family members and who are out around about you? Do you have the opportunity to testify of God to them? And do you sound a clear note? Do you sound a clear note? You guys know what I mean. I mean, I, I'm with you. I know who you are because I'm you. I know what it's like to talk to people and try to say something about Jesus Christ, and I know how I want to I wanna put a nice spin on it somehow, and I want to make it a nice thing somehow. And boy, when you start talking about 14,000 people dying under the hand of God because of their disobedience, and it was just, it was just, he did not sin in killing those people. And that's the God you want to introduce them to. It becomes difficult to have the courage to do it. And yet God is so big and powerful, not only can, guess what, not only can those people survive hearing the truth about him, they can survive a lot more through his power and through his work. They can be saved from their sins through the work of Jesus Christ. You knew about all that, didn't you? You knew about Korah and the Levites and the plague, didn't you? Did God save you? Intelligible and edifying. Well, that was the problem at Corinth. They weren't. They weren't in their service. And you have to wonder if they were anywhere else. And so we want to be in our service, but we want to be in our lives. We want to be clear in our lives of who we are. And so it's our privilege now to come to the Lord